the fake media tried to stop us from going to the White House. But I'm president and they're not. The president tweeting a barrage of anti-media attacks over the holiday weekend. As you know, I have a running war with the media. 14% of Republicans trust the media. There's a war on truth. There's a war on fact. Mr. Trump is rewriting the relationship with the press. I love honesty. I like honest reporting. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. She's a noted historian with a unique view of the Trump administration. And he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with decades of experience reporting in Washington. And this is the Politics and History podcast that asks, what is happening? And has it happened before? Hi, Heather. Hey, Ron. Okay, this week we get personal. This is about Trump and the media. I'm a member of the media. So after the president tweeted about Mika Brzezinski's face and punching CNN, what's happening here? Are his comments dangerous? Is this some sort of weird partisan shtick of this period? Is this fair play? When I look at this moment, I see decades leading up to now. Decades in which people identified the media as the enemy and said, look, look, they're trouble. We need to undermine them in consistent, steady, and relentless ways. Dating back to the 1960s, the press is liberal. They can't be trusted, period. It was steady. It was relentless. It worked. And now we're at a place where I'm not sure how informed consent works when all of the people who are professionals, for the most part, doing that delivery of informed have been demeaned and discredited and are essentially ignored by wide swaths of the population. Heather, how seriously are you taking Trump's direct pointed attacks on the media? Very seriously. It's the, the big change where he is actively, as president, calling for violence against our fourth estate and the role of the free press in making sure that American citizens have access to fact, to argument, to the principles of the Enlightenment that created this country is a huge step and a very dangerous step. Uh, let's welcome our guest, Nick Amelli, director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, author of The End of Big how the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. Welcome, Nico. It's great to be here. So, Nico, there's there's a widely accepted narrative that the media enabled Trump during his rise, during his campaign and his victory. But also, haven't they been enabling him during those first hundred days? Tell me what the evidence shows as to how Trump has been uh, signing up the media as his handmaiden. So we've done five studies, all of 2015, 2016, and the first 100 days of Trump, looking at media coverage, mainstream major media coverage of Trump, everything from Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, et cetera. The truth is the, the media in, during the campaign overwhelmingly gave Trump positive coverage. Mm. 
However, one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the stories were driven by polling. And the story was always that Trump was rising in the polls. New CNN ORC polls very much about Donald Trump's huge lead as the choice of Republicans for the presidential nomination. Despite all kind of conventional wisdom to the contrary, he was winning and it won in the primaries. And so that favors Trump in a, in a really overwhelmingly dramatic way. However, How about the first hundred days? In the first hundred days, the coverage is overwhelmingly negative. However, most of the time in the first 100 days, the only person that the media quotes on Trump is Trump. I think it's 6% of the time they quote a Democrat, 4% of the time a congressional Republican, almost no policy experts. The stories about Trump quote Trump. And so it's a very weird dynamic in that sense. It is overwhelmingly negative, but it's also all Trump all the time. It's a reality show. They're going to and the star. Compared to the last three presidents, he dominates news coverage. So much more of the nightly newscast is about Trump than in the first 100 days than any prior president. It's really astonishing, almost to the exclusion of all other news. I mean, he's he, like, he, I'm talking about sports news yeah, yeah. and weather news. Like, he crushes it. Well, you know, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is somebody mentioned sports news. I'll just mention this. Is that years ago, an ABC producer, I just for Ted Koppel, said, why do people watch sports on television? I said, well, I don't know. It's neatly lined. They're winners and losers. No, 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 no. It's the only thing that occurs on television. It actually happens. Everything else is produced. Trump occurs on television. You can't take your eyes off of him. In the two years of the presidential campaign, it doesn't matter which candidate or which issue. Pick any candidate. And Trump is quoted two to three times more in an article about that candidate than the candidate themselves. Good God. Trump is quoted more on Ted Cruz than Ted Cruz is. Trump is quoted more on Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton He had is. the best lines. Lying Ted, crooked Hillary, low energy Jeb. I mean, you know, you can't not credit a kind of a kind of twisted genius in managing that. He hung that around their neck in bully fashion. That's your name well, now. I think a crucial question for the media is how they will cover the presidential campaign in 2020. Will they do anything differently? Well, the problem is if you are either covering Trump or covering the resistance to Trump, he is still defining the narrative. That's right. And it's, I think, really reasonable to ask whether what we really should be doing if we're trying to take America back to our traditional roots is saying we're going to sideline you and we're going to talk about the issues. We're going to talk about the country. We're going to talk about traditions and we're just going to move you off stage. It's what Kellyanne Conway saying. Ignore the tweets. Don't cover the tweets. So, but, but hasn't Trump figured out a new way for the most powerful man to signal to 35 million computers in people's pockets with these tweets? Isn't this a next generation, a revolutionizing, Nico, of the way politicians communicate? He's got as a he direct claims. line. He's got a direct line. I mean, it's That's a leap everybody forward. Always wants. It's a leap forward. It's not actually that new in a sense that. Any politician with a large email list has had this power. This is like the story of move on in a sense. Yeah, but, but clearly he's harnessing it in a way they haven't. What makes it different in the way he's weaponized it? What does he know or what has he understood that other politicians have not? Do you know Godwin's law? It's a nerd law that in any online conversation, given enough time, somebody gets called a Nazi. That's, the God, that's Godwin's law. And there's something about online online engagement, online discussion that lends itself towards anger. 
Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't always happen, but it's a common characteristic. It's why we have a ton of harmful speech from ISIL all the way to bullying. And Trump understands that. Yeah, yeah. But look, he, he also is understanding that I'm going outside of the established channels. It's the bully pulpit on steroids. It's it's an unmediated audience. Heather? Well, the, th- the thing that keeps jumping out at me is, is Ron keeps asking you what's new, and we keep talking about the moment of what Trump's doing. How is the fact that this man happens to be using Twitter any different than the rise of radio, which people would have said the exact same thing about, or the rise of popular newspapers in the late 19th century, which was so new that the established politicians back east missed it altogether, you know, after the election of 1890? Literally, they sat in the White House going, what happened? What We didn't see this coming. How did we lose all these elections? I mean, you could go right back to the printing press for being brand new technology. How is what's happening at this moment any different than what happened throughout human history? Well, maybe part of the issue is a comparative one in terms of the counterpoint to that, to me going straight to the American people on radio, let's say fireside chats with FDR. Uh, and the cosseting around it of news, <laughs> lots of other news, reported news. Maybe the deficit of that, the, the diminishing of that, makes what he's doing in this direct feed even more important because it doesn't have competition. I mean, I, yeah, I think what's different is that in those other media, it was pretty expensive to have a radio broadcasting license. It was a facility. big event. That's a good point, Nico. And it was pretty expensive, actually, to print newspapers and that meant that, that very few people actually could do it. And there was still political power in it. But part of what makes Trump work is the vast proliferation of media and noise. Uh, you know, if you take everything, every human ever created in terms of information from the dawn of humanity, cave paintings, all the way to 2010, that's about how much we create every 36 hours today. And that, like Instagram, Facebook, everyone's participating in this giant cacophony, and it is beautiful and ugly and terrifying. But it's it also, the Wild West. It also incentivizes a, a kind of behavior to break through. Heather, Donald Trump isn't the first modern president to go to war with the media. Uh, listen uh, to Nixon here in October 1973. He's talking about press coverage of his administration as the Watergate scandal swelled. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Perhaps what happened is that what we did uh, brought it about, and therefore uh, the media decided that they would have to uh, take that particular line. But when people are pounded night after night, uh, with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence. I'd like to point out that in his memoirs, Nixon maintained until the end that Watergate was the fault of the media, that he had done nothing wrong, and he was resigning not because of Watergate or the cover-up, but because the media was making it impossible for him to do his job. And that, I suspect, goes right to what's happening with President Trump's attacks on the media. People hate the media when it's it's pointing out the fact that they are, in fact, doing something that they shouldn't be doing. They're either unpopular, they're doing something illegal. Uh, it, this is not but, new in American history. The level of where it has gone is new in American history. But what I like and I'm struck by listening to Nixon is what he says there in the middle. Perhaps what happened is that what we did brought it about. 
he's embracing a reality-based idea that they are reporting something that is discernible, objectively clear or true. Um, that's not the thing that happens today. Uh, the view is that, that it is fake, that they are partisans. In the early days of the George W. Bush administration, I was covering them, and I sat with Karen Hughes, uh, who was Bush's right hand to Karl Rove, the two of them. And, um, and we sat in her office, and I said, look, I'm writing at that point for Esquire magazine. I said, I, I want some access to George W. Bush. And she said, okay, um, what kind of access? And he said, well, an example I have that I think has been widely noted is during the Ford administration, they had a reporter for the New York Times, uh, John Hersey, who spent two weeks with Gerald Ford, fly in the wall, and produce an extraordinary piece in the New York Times that really was a seminal piece on that presidency. I mean, I, I'd hope for something like that. She's like, uh-huh. Well, let me give you a counterpoint. And she opened the drawer and she pulled out a Time magazine. It was after uh, the midterm elections. And they had a picture of George W. Bush on the cover. She's like, this piece in Time? Uh, this uh, cost me 17 minutes. And if it wasn't so lovely, next time they'd get seven minutes. She said, let me explain to you. We see the mainstream media like we see another partisan in Washington, like the healthcare lobby. We no longer have any need to work through you. We now have our own press, Fox News, the conservative press. They're ready for us, and they're ready in ways we want them to be ready. So we can ignore you. At this point, you need to get used to not being needed anymore. And I said, my goodness, so that's the new way. They thought in a very strategic way, real R&D, about how to manage the mainstream media. And to be fair... This is about power, not party. Many of those techniques were not only used, but advanced by the Obama administration. The president often ducking impromptu questions, Thank you guys. denying the media unscripted answers that might be newsworthy. To say we are going to choke off access to informed reporters sitting with the president of the United States in on-the-record interviews. And in fact, you can even look at George W. Bush and Barack Obama and say, we had less access to Obama than we did to Bush. And of course, Trump has taken it to a new stage. Is that just smart play uh, of power? It, I think there's a long tradition of it. I mean, Reagan, right? Reagan packaged up stories and took them to local affiliates, bypassing national broadcasters. Yeah. There's like a long history, I think, of trying to figure out how to deal with an antagonistic press. Right, but, but Reagan, certainly in that period, Reagan forward, we see real innovation. But I think that you would argue, and not just put words in your mouth, which I'm now going to do. Yeah, go ahead. That the problem with that is you get into your own bubble, and at this point that bubble has drifted so far from the regular people who actually have real interests on the ground that are not reflected in current policy and a current the current administration that they've turned at this point to Twitter and are saying, wait a minute, we want to take this back. And what I'm suggesting is that, yeah, we're in the Wild West right now, but that ultimately human beings want to have their news reflect their reality, real reality. I mean, facts have a hard way of coming home to roost and that this is starting to filter down. People are starting to look and say, wait a minute, that's, yeah. that is truly fake but, news. I want the world to reflect my reality. I don't know, Heather. I think that I actually think reality television plays into the whole dynamic. I actually think one of the best ways of understanding 
the Trump presidency and its attitude towards the media and its brilliance in manipulating the media is looking at trends in television production, sitcoms in the 80s That's to reality right, yeah. TV today. Because a lot of what is playing out is is not actually about news or anything meaningful for people. It's about this kind of cycle of conflict and resolution, conflict well, and but, resolution. But here's where I disagree. That is what is meaningful to people. It's the emotional quotient, and Trump gets that. But, look, Heather, I want to go back to the foundations, the true foundations. Tell, tell us the story, the, the Peter Zenger story. It's a great story. It is a great story, and it is the centerpiece of this nation. In 1733, a printer named John Peter Zenger started to publish material that he had not written. He kept his sources secret, uh, but he published material that was critical of one of the king's representatives, one of the king's royal governors in America. And so thereby definition, he was also criticizing the king. And you could not, it was illegal to criticize the king or his royal representatives in the colonies. So he's arrested in 1733. And theoretically, he's supposed to stop publishing his newspaper. And one night it doesn't get published. But the next day, his wife takes it over and she continues to publish it while he is in prison. And when he comes to trial, first the king's representatives are all in the jury. It's a completely stacked jury, and they get thrown out because there's such a public outcry, and they are replaced by a jury of a true jury of his peers. And the standard for whether or not he's guilty is whether or not he published this material. Now, there was no doubt he'd published this material, but he gets a, a lawyer, an up-and-coming lawyer who's fairly well-known then, and he goes before the jury and he says, listen, I'm not going to argue that he published this material because he did publish this material. But what I'm going to argue is that the truth matters. I want the king's representatives to have to argue that this is not true. And in fact, it is true. Uh, and he goes before the jury and he says, you know, you can find him guilty if in fact he has published material that is not true. But if in fact the king's representative is corrupt and all the things he said, then you must find him not guilty. And the jury goes out very briefly, and they come back with our first jury nullification in which they say, yeah, he's not guilty. And that recognition that newspaper publishers have the right to criticize the government becomes such a part of American culture at that point that even the king and his representatives start to back off from trying to prosecute people for libel because they recognize that there's going to be more and more jury nullification and they're going to look worse and worse. So America gets this tradition of newspaper men publishing the truth as opposed to what the king wants them to publish. And when, in fact, the founders write the Constitution, I think it's really worth noting that the first amendment to the Constitution, not the third or the seventh or the tenth, is the right to a free press. And one of the founding fathers, a guy named Governor Morris, who was at the Constitutional Convention from Pennsylvania, actually looked back to John Peter Zenger's trial, and he said it was the Zenger trial that was the thing that launched liberty in America because Americans figured out that they could criticize authority and write a government that belonged to them and that was based on the enlightenment principles of truth. And I think Americans still believe that, and they want that back. I mean, I love the fact that it's truth to power. When the power truth to power. When the power was the king. Very interesting. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Uh, Nico, according to CNN... Uh, they hated CNN. <laughs> More than 10% of Donald Trump's tweets as president have been attacking 
the media. Beyond that, Donald Trump has threatened to change libel laws to make it easier to sue news outlets. The White House is being extremely secretive, as we know about a lot of information, from visitor logs to ethics waivers. They're holding very, very few on-camera press briefings and not being honest and forthright when they do, just clear as an unmuddied lake. How concerned are you about press freedoms today? I'm terrified. I'm, I'm just really concerned. Like, how concerned am I? Eleven. <laughs> you know that. Okay, and, I'm going to do twelve. Heather, thirteen. Yeah. That's the. Why are you? Why are you so concerned? Well, first, it's a trend that started in many ways in the Obama administration, and and not just the Obama administration. The the last you know thirty five forty years of American presidential activity. Uh, I, I will been, go further. Yeah. I say it started during the George W. Bush administration. I was under federal investigation for several years. Jim Rise in the New York Times and others. But yes, the Obama administration certainly advanced it. Consolidation of executive power over the last three decades combined with kind of a growing suspicion of the media and also the sense that you could push back that in the current kind of economic and technological upheaval, the media was vulnerable. But I think that what concerns me most or why I'm so concerned is that I think it speaks to kind of this crucial idea of the public. I'm not sure that Americans have a shared sense of the public anymore. And there was a study recently by the American Press Institute in May that talked about, you know, do you trust the media? People, everybody says no. But earlier in the survey, they'd asked, what media do you consume? So maybe you say, well, I re watch Fox News or I read the New York Times. Do you trust the media? No. Do you trust the media you consume? Oh, yes. And there's kind of a similar kind of paradox in, in Congress. People hate Congress. They love their member of Congress. And I think that when I look at the landscape and kind of polarization in America today and the state of the local and federal institutions, that what we've lost is some sense of the public, of public good, of public service, of something shared there that just doesn't exist anymore. And if that goes away, then accountability is a different question. Then the role of the media is just it's your media, not my media. That kind of sets in motion a whole bunch of other other things that are really dangerous to the social contract. Yeah, you know, like I, I am fearful that my friends in the fourth estate are going to be serving jail time or worse. Have we ever, Heather, had a uh, moment when reporters felt at threat as many of them are are feeling now? From their own government? From their own government and from the, the public. From the public, I think probably not as much. Certainly during, there are times when the government has cracked down on what the press can print. Pretty notably during the Civil War, actually. People always point to the fact that Abraham Lincoln came down on people who were publishing negative stories. Uh, Jefferson Davis was much harsher. He actually suppressed a number of newspapers. It's not unusual at all for the government to put limits on what uh, reporters can say, especially during wartime and in the interest of national security. Generally, the reporters have self-policed, especially in World War II, so they haven't really come up that often against an office of censorship, for example. But again, what really jumps out at me in this moment is the fact that the president seems to be encouraging violence. 
I think the other thing that, that is showing up here that is not always obvious to male journalists, although you certainly hear about it a lot, is the extent of violent threats to female uh, journalists. Anybody mm. who takes a female, any women Boy, who take roles that's on. That's spot on. That is, it's everywhere. And um, Look at the people Trump's attacked. Especially women. I Megyn think Kelly, women, Mika Brzezinski. Uh, I mean, I think that arguably just as terrifying as the incarceration or violence against journalists is the rendering of journalistic authority as obsolete, as unreliable, as partisan. I mean, there was this poll out last week that Republicans overwhelmingly don't believe CNN and Democrats overwhelmingly do. Mm-hmm. And the the more that the traditional gatekeepers, the traditional owners of knowledge and expertise, the more they're delegitimized, the harder it's going to be to recover that authority. I think that right now we're at a time where people are seeking a story, a narrative that seems to fit their lives. And I think part of that is something that I think we all could agree on. If you ask anyone, whether they're in Gross Point or Berkeley or Texarkana, do you want to be lied to? Do you want to be misled? Almost all of them say no. And I think that this is more than just about our, our role as actors in a democracy. It's fundamental to who we are as human beings. No one wants to be misled. No one. And at some point, I think there will be a correction. May not be soon, but people say, please don't mislead me. And tell me a story, a shared national narrative as an American. Heather Cox Richardson, thank you. It's always good to chat. Nick O'Malley, head of the Shorenstein Center at the Kennedy School here at Harvard. Thanks. Thank you for giving me some hope there, Ron. What do you think, baby? I am Ron Suska, and this is Freak Out and Carry On. We'll see you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freakout Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.